so Lisa and I are taking a little break for a few weeks because I'm currently in the outback surrounded by, well, basically an excessive amount of space and terrible Wi-Fi. But we are busy planning some great Christmas episodes for you. We are. And in the meantime, we wanted to revisit one of our most popular episodes, When the Mask Slips, the case of James Corden and Ellen. And we thought it's the perfect time to revisit this, given the recent news that James Corden has landed his first US job since quitting the Late Late Show in April after eight years as the host. Not to mention, this has been the year of TV presenter hell. From Phil Schofield to Drew Barrymore, even Kelly Clarkson is coming under fire. So is it open season on lovable talk show hosts? And do they just have to wait for the backlash to die down before it's back to business? Let's go straight to the comments. So before we jump headfirst into the rerun of our James Corden and Ellen episode, let's just have a quick look back at what's happened since April when we recorded that episode, because man, has this year been packed with stuff. It has. And well, just last week, it's been announced that James Corden is set to kickstart a new career in radio as the host of the Sirius XM show titled This Life of Mine. The show promises in-depth chats with the world's biggest stars. It really does seem there like he's just leveraging what sort of the Mail Online referred to as his lengthy list of celebrity pals. Mm -hmm. But it also sort of seems like, oh, well, he's over that previous fallout from the various reports of his mean behaviour and that it's completely died down and everyone's forgot about the, what was it, the eggless omelette. Yeah. How has this news gone down with people, Lisa? Are they excited? Are they terrified? What is it? Oh, don't troll me, Sarah, (laughs) because honestly, you know the reactions have been terrible. Well, there was this comment, a headline from the seventh circle of hell. (laughs) And another comment, this feels entirely based off the fact he can book big celebrities, which isn't a small thing. Mm. And then someone else said, so he wasn't able to get a TV gig then. And this comment, clearly he knows the UK doesn't want him back. If he ate some humble pie, he might be forgiven, but his reputation as a rude narcissist precedes him. And I think you can imagine the theme of most of the comments was to do with, okay, so he quit America to come back to the UK because he was homesick, but now he's going back to work in America. But no, a lot of people said, actually, this is radio, like what you and I are doing. He can be anywhere doing the show. I don't think it means he's moving back stateside. No, exactly. Yeah, there was a, a lot of back and forth about that. And also this idea that um, in a way he's maybe burnt his bridges with the UK audiences, but he still seems to appeal to the American ones. And like one of your comments says, it's really all about the guests, isn't it? Because if Taylor Swift goes on his show, it doesn't matter how much you hate him. If you love her, then you're going to be listening. Yeah. What a lot of people also pointed out in the comments is this idea, almost the unfairness People can really find him grating, but if he's got the connections, because he's actually nice to the other famous people, maybe not to the wait staff, then he could still be successful and get loads of money. So I think a lot of people were sort of feeling like it's a bit of an unfair comeback in a way. You're absolutely right, Sarah, because it's almost like we're saying we're rewarding toxic behaviour. And isn't this the year of like being like, no, you don't get rewarded for toxic behaviour and you are... I mean, I really don't like the word cancelled, but, you know, you get your contracts taken away. I mean, let's look at um, what happened to Phil Schofield this Mm, year. Absolutely. And it it feels very much like he doesn't have a chance in hell of doing a comeback. But I think maybe it depends on how much stuff is proved. Again, that separation between countries. 
And I think the thing is with Phil Schofield, you're, you're right, like there is that sort of spectrum of so-called crimes. And I think, you know, we, what's the worst crime that James Corden's done? He's a mean person. Mm. Ellen might be a mean person. We don't know. This is all speculation. But this is just like a pattern of behaviour that we saw a lot in the comments and we'll go into in the full episode. But with Phil Schofield, there was those insinuations, wasn't it, that he was grooming even. And even just touching anything to do with that is just like a no-go for any TV company, any brand, any endorsements. I mean, he really has. I mean, what um, a surprise. I really didn't see this coming for Phil Schofield. No, it definitely was. It really seemed to taint the people around him as well. But, you know, what's interesting with James Corden is that it really feels like this comeback is being pushed because I saw that article one day and the next day, immediately afterwards, was another one in the Mail Online saying, James Corden and Ruth Jones sparked rumours of a Gavin and Stacey reunion as they head out for a stroll in Soho. And it was one of those classic, we've just papped you and it's a photo article. And now we're going to speculate that an entire new Christmas special is coming, even though we have no information other than the fact they went out and got a coffee. Um, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it does feel like the frequency of those stories, one after the other, his PR team are really trying to get his profile raised and create a bit of a buzz for this sort of comeback. But there was something that you picked up on and you said that was really interesting was that a lot of the comments were actually fat shaming him. But it's okay to fat shame him because he's a mean person. But if you're a nice person, it's not okay, right? I mean, people just had a field day with the whole he's got a face and body for radio. And in fact, there were loads of fat shaming comments on the the second article with Ruth Jones, where they were saying, oh, you know, two overweight people. What was interesting there was they were attacking both of them, even though it's only him that has that reputation. And it's just a, such a predictable, I get kind of bored with the constant comments about, oh, I agree. Oh, you're fat. And that's the yeah. worst insult I can come up with because he's, he's not, he's not a sports person. It really doesn't relate to his job at all. Um, so, you know, why? Exactly. But it's just another thing to bring him down on, right? Yeah. It's like an easy, and it's an easy get for perhaps the Mm -hmm. fact that they already dislike him for his behavior. There were a whole lot of comments on the Ruth Jones, um, article, for example, so annoying. I can't stand him, but he is great as Smithy. Hope we get one more episode and finally found out what happened in that bloody fishing trip. And I've no idea what that refers Mm. to because I haven't seen this show but it sounds like people just really want the cliffhanger resolved. Another, sorry, but total setup, surprised at her. Also, would it be possible to do this without James? Because I might watch if they could. And great move, backpedal to a time when people actually liked him before he got too big for his shiny boots. So Mm -hmm. there does still seem to be quite a lot of love because of Gavin and Stacey. Maybe this is even one of those planted articles to see if there's enough interest from audiences that's a good point to see if you know it it would test the water you know Mm. (laughs) they're actually just doing market research in this article instead but yeah I, i don't think you've watched the show either have you no i haven't seen the show and but i did like him when he started out doing comedy for the bbc i think he was he did a sketch with george michael mm. and they were really quite funny together and i thought he seemed like a good laugh he is the guy down the pub that's really cheeky chappy yeah. funny but yes, we have a lot to say about him in the full episode. But really, 
This, like I said, has been the year of hell for TV presenters. They've been under scrutiny, in my view, like never mm. before. Or maybe it's because we've been doing the podcast. <laughs> and like you said earlier, Phil Schofield went through everything he did, which we talked about in our bonus episode in June. And actually, we forgot to say that. Yes, you said it affected people. But Holly quit a month ago, didn't she? Holly Willoughby. She said, I've had it. She had that terrible stalker situation, which even people were like, oh, that's fitting that she found a stalker so she can leave the show. I mean, it's a bit, give the woman some credit. I think that was pretty true. It's very hard to find someone to stalk you. (laughs) I mean, I don't, I mean, Sarah, what did you think about that? I mean, it's actually quite scary. I've actually been stalked before. And I can tell you, I don't think anyone, even it wasn't an extreme thing, but um, I don't think anyone would willingly do that. And it is well known that like celebrities have a lot of these things come up. They become targets, don't they, of obsessions. And then she left this morning. But we've been noticing and we've been talking a lot between ourselves about, because we both love Drew Barrymore. She's made an amazing transition into being a talk show host the last couple of years. But then she also got a lot of hate, which I really thought would never happen to her. I think she's been very careful in curating her brand Mm. and her kind of personality in her talk show. She got a lot of hate for breaking the picket line of the Hollywood writer's strike on September the 10th. Barrymore announced on social media that her show was coming back and a lot of people were upset um, because, you know, she effectively her show needs writers, right? So she said, oh, I'm doing it for the crew and she's carrying the crew. I get that and the whole brand. But she did have a massive backlash online and six days later, she issued an apology and she then went on to backtrack posting on Instagram I'm making the decision to pause the show's premiere until the strike is over. I have no words to express my deepest apologies to anyone I have hurt. Yeah, and people really were upset. For example, West Wing star Josh Molina posted a photo of Barrymore on Twitter or whatever it's called now with the word scab attached. And then his former co-star Bradley Whitford wrote that we'll never forget Barrymore's decision to go back on the air amid the strikes. But other people have actually pointed out that the hate was almost disproportionate to other people. So someone said, if you're giving Mm -hmm. Drew Barrymore heat, you've got to hit all the other shows because someone is writing. Mm. So for an example, The View, which is also a a talk show, they continued and they did get some backlash, but they didn't receive anywhere near the same level of hate as Drew Barrymore got. So I was reading this really good article in Vox where they said, the real issue is that Drew Barrymore has built an extremely successful brand for herself and central to that brand is her being a very good person, makes it harder to square with the act of crossing a picket line. And it really does Mm -hmm. feel like this good uh, person, this good woman image that she's cultivated has really come to bite her in the ass because she's now being held to a much higher standard than maybe other people. And as soon as you lose that almost that halo, people really want to take you down for it. They really do. And this really fits into kind of like the story that we're going to tell today and the idea that the talk show host who has built their image on being likable and the sort of every person. And then as soon as that mask slips, like you said, it's very hard to make a comeback and people are looking almost for more evidence Mm. of bad behaviour or even it happened to Jimmy Fallon. We said the only person when we did our research that hasn't got any got into any trouble is Jimmy Fallon, but even he had a mild kind of skirmish, I think, a month ago with people coming out and saying that he wasn't the person he oh, really? I missed makes that. out to be. Yeah, yeah, and it was like the mask was slipping. Mm. But then he must have a, a fabulous PR team because it sort of got stopped in its tracks quite quickly. And I think another example that I wanted to talk about 
is Kelly Clarkson. And, you know, recently I keep seeing articles about how much weight she's lost. I think it's like 60 pounds mm. and accusing her of secretly using a Zempic. So similar to the accusations made at Adele and Rebel Wilson, which we talked about in our fat shaming episode. You know, if your likability is in your appeal as a sort of every woman, thinking of Oprah mm. in the 80s and her weight struggles, can you still be successful if you lose weight and get a kind of Hollywood makeover? Because I really think Kelly Clarkson is that camp now of like, you're too skinny, you've been using a Zempic, I don't feel like you're very relatable anymore. Especially if the brand is being relatable. But I don't know if it's just about her losing weight. Or it's actually about this perception that she's lied about it. Because now the biggest thing that I see everywhere is, oh, a Zempic, a Zempic. They're clearly using a Zempic and they're lying about it. You know, at least I will say Sharon Osborne is very open about all the stuff that she does. She'll still get backlash, but she's not. But she looks very, very different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and she's always been quite open about the stuff she does. But I think there's this, uh, this, this idea that you're being sold a lie that someone's saying, I've worked really hard, I've done all this stuff, but actually I'm taking injections. And, you know, I, I have absolutely no judgment on taking in injections because, as you know, I, I actually am on th that medication myself based on what my endocrinologist suggested. So it's I don't have any judgment for it. For it. I wouldn't advise it for people who don't actually have an issue to start with, and I think it is being abused. But there's definitely this idea that all the celebrities are running around using something that's super easy, which is the perception, and they're cheating, so to speak, but then they're trying to pretend that they're not using that. And I think it's the lie sometimes, or this perception of lying, that really jars with this idea of being a, a trustworthy everywoman. Exactly. But for me, a big part of the brand of Oprah was her weight struggles. Mm. And I think we found her very endearing because of that and relatable. And it's almost like I was saying, if everyone is now slim, <laughs> it's like the audience is at home. You're like, well, who have I got left to like feel like, oh, they represent yeah. me. What I find fascinating about this year is what we expect from TV hosts. And like we say, we want them to be entertainers. We want them to be witty, musical, funny, maybe even a bit political. Maybe they've got struggles that we can relate to, like weight. But it's like as soon as we take that glimpse of some trouble, it's like very quick, like you said, to crack the kind of relatability and that feeling that they're lovable. Mm. And can they get that love back, which is very difficult and has to be very carefully managed. And I really, the jury's out for me with um, James Corden and whether his show will be a success. I think it's obviously, for me, I think it's just going to be a male online hate fest every time a new episode comes out. A bit like the Meghan Merkel when she did the um, podcast show, it was just an opportunity for them to hate on her. Yeah, but she still got paid a shitload. So, you know, <laughs> 20 million. Who's laughing? Who's laughing yeah. now? I guess watch this space and we'll see where it goes next. So Sarah, before we get into James Corden and Ellen, let's first take a quick look at the history of chat shows in the UK and America. I mean, we always start off talking about the 80s and 90s. This is when we grew up. We do. We had Terry Wogan and Michael Parkinson. You were both very gentle and really skilled interviewers, in my opinion. And I really love Terry Wogan. I mean, I thought he was so funny, so witty. You can almost be a bit subversive, but in that very charming and comforting way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they were really great. But it was a sort of a different story in the US. 
So Johnny Carson was the main guy and he was the only late night chat show host from about Mm -hmm. the 70s. And then he retired in 1992. And this opened things up a bit. And there was a huge chat show rivalry between Jay Leno and David Letterman. Yeah. But the American shows, the tone was a little bit different, particularly the the latter ones. They seem to have a bit more of a sort of mean, sarcastic streak to them compared to yeah. what went on before with Johnny Carson, which was more like sort of lovable, clownish. Yeah, like the sort of golden age sort of entertainer host, you know? Definitely. So yeah, I remember um, Letterman in the 90s. And to be honest, I always found him a bit creepy, like that sort of creepy uncle vibe. Um, and he would always say things to the female guests, especially sort of young, beautiful film stars you look tremendous and focus on their legs and their bodies and how they smell. And he just was generally over-interested in them. Yeah, and I think there's like there was a YouTube video where they put all the clips together of him just being kind of, yeah, like you said, creepy towards women. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the last decade, there's been so many different chat shows um, in the US. And, and they sort of run across the spectrum. There's the Politically Charged with John Oliver and Trevor Noah. And then you've got the other end of the spectrum, which is the sort of more musically and comedy oriented, like Jimmy Fallon and James Corden. But I think what's really interesting is that in the US particularly, a lot of these chat show hosts come from the comedy scene. Exactly. And, you know, you can imagine like how to do a live show, you need those comedy and sort of stand up skills. And I always remember Ricky Gervais had an interesting take when he always gets asked, when he goes on chat shows, why are you not a chat show host? Why didn't you go and do it in America? He's done all the award shows, etc. But he had an interesting take and he said this, you know, someone works really hard and they become a comedian. They then get offered a chat show in America and they take that and then they work their way down from being a comedian to a bloke who's looking for hits on YouTube the next day because no one watches late night. Mm. And he said the reason he would never do it himself is you become the second most interesting person in the room. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's a good good way of putting it. So let's get on to James Corden. Okay. Uh, many of us in the UK, we know James Corden. He, he acts, he sings, he writes. Most of us in the UK, we know him from Gavin and Stacey, a sitcom that he co-wrote with Ruth Jones. And he really made a name for himself, like in the theatre world, um, getting rave reviews. And I really remember for, he got like Tony Awards and BAFTA Awards for his different performances. And he was really starting to make his way into the film world around sort of 2010-11, he was sort of breaking into the film scene. And then in 2014, his career took a quite an unexpected turn when he was announced as the new host of The Late Late Show to replace Craig Ferguson the following year. And this surprising choice caused quite a stir. And let's have a look at some of the reactions on Reddit. I'm not the biggest fan of Corden from what I've seen, big quizzes, Gavin and Stacey. But I have to say it's a bold choice by CBS. He has practically no name recognition in the States even less so than Ferguson did. We shall see how it goes. I mean, have you seen The Late Late Show? Well, I haven't really seen the whole show because I, I don't think we really watch um, the the full US late night shows as much in the UK. Mm-hmm. I, I would say if I'm going to watch anything, I'm much more likely to watch Graham Norton. And I do remember being really surprised when he was announced because it didn't seem like an obvious choice. But I have seen a few of the carpool karaoke videos and the Spill Your Guts videos, and they've always gone viral on YouTube. And those segments that are able to go viral as video clips, it seems like that's the most important aspect of talk show success these days. So yeah, they've called it the late, late show of the TikTok generation. And I think he's created these incredibly like blockbuster viral segments when you think of like carpool karaoke. And I think one of the first ones, I think it was either Mariah or Adele, but 
these were like, I mean, the Adele clip was getting, I looked online, it had over 260 million views. Wow. It was absolutely huge. And I think that it's interesting that he sort of shook up that formula. You know, like you said, it's not so much about being sitting in the chair and, and interviewing someone like Letterman. It was more about these segments, you know, and creating content that he knew would go viral. Definitely. And I think that was the key to its success. But as we've sort of mentioned in our intro, Corden is now leaving The Late Late Show after eight years. And his final show is airing this Thursday on April the 27th. Mm -hmm. This actually comes on the heel of we've had, he's had quite a lot of controversies recently. He's been called out for the sort of diva-like and mean behavior. There'd definitely been a range of uh, things before this, but there was a recent tipping point in October last year when he was publicly called out by Keith McNally, the owner of New York restaurant Balthazar, and then he was banned from the restaurant. And McNally posted on Instagram, James Corden is a hugely gifted comedian, but a tiny cretin of a man and the most abusive customer to my Balthazar servers since the restaurant opened 25 years ago. I don't often 86 a customer, but today I 86 Corden. It did not make me laugh. He went on to cite two examples of the behavior. So one in June, in which the comedian, upon finding a hair in his meal, was apparently extremely nasty to a manager. And then one again in October, in which Corden's wife was dissatisfied with her egg yolk omelette, which included trace amounts of egg white. And apparently Corden screamed at his server as a result. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. People had a strong reaction to this in the comments, didn't they? Oh, my gosh, they did. And just to say, just a little aside, I've been a waitress and I think it's, you know, it's one of the most devastating things to be shouted at or even talked loudly at, mm-hmm. let alone screamed at. So I can really empathise with the server. Um, but yes, you're right. Online, they had a lot of um, reactions to this. In the Daily Mail, they said, all that brouhaha was because an egg yolk omelette had a little bit of egg white in it. Rich people's first world problem. And another, if you mistreat wait staff that speaks volumes about your fundamental character intelligence. He sounds like another Ellen. And interestingly enough, we're actually going to come on to Ellen later, aren't we? Yes, we are. And so this, this was a comment on Twitter. I believe almost all of this, but Mr. McNally does himself no favours as a reliable narrator when he starts off by describing James Corden as a hugely talented comedian. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know. That still makes me laugh. That yes. And most of the comments have been extremely negative about Corden. But some question what the restaurant owner's motivations were for calling him out publicly. And on Daily Mail again, there are two sides to the story. Maybe James Corden was rude to some staff, but I suspect they were greatly exaggerated events. Plus, it's widely known that many American hospitality workers are hypersensitive and precious. Wow. And another, yeah, disgraceful that the restaurant owner would try and get some cheap publicity by twisting the facts. Do you think that was James Corden that wrote that? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you never know. Like they do that in the so, comments. Hi, James. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, I mean, I think his reaction to the story definitely didn't help it. I, I mean, he denied it and he seemed completely unapologetic. Uh, when he was asked about it by a New York Times reporter, he actually told the journalist that speaking about the ordeal was beneath your publication. <sighs> then he sort of changed tack and he later half apologized in a monologue on his talk show. But he had a lot of caveats. So, for example, he said, but here's the truth of it, because I didn't shout or scream. I didn't get up out of my seat. I didn't call anyone names or use derogatory language. I've been walking around thinking that I've not done anything wrong. In the heat of the moment, I made a sarcastic, rude comment about cooking it myself. And then he also went on to claim that the reason he was so upset is that his wife was given food that she was, and I quote, seriously allergic to. 
But here's the thing that confused a lot of people. She ordered an egg yolk omelette because she's allergic to egg white. And like someone said online, this comment, come on, Corden, if your wife is really allergic to egg whites, she shouldn't eat eggs. It's impossible to split yolks and whites for 100%. And then from a Medium article, however, I call utter bullshit on Corden's allergy claims. And quoting from the American College of Allergy, Asthma and Immunology, anyone diagnosed with an allergy to either egg whites or egg yolks should avoid eggs altogether. It is not possible to completely separate the white from the yolk. Well, this is, I never thought we'd get into this level of detail about, <laughs> about eggs. eggs. Yeah, I know it's always about eggs. Well, I think what's interesting is he, essentially he didn't really apologise because an apology with a caveat isn't a real apology. And, you know, you work in marketing. I know it's not PR, but why are apologies so important in PR? We've all seen the classic apology, mm. the politician's apology. You know, why are they so important? Well, it's like, I suppose like in real life, if you've been really upset or offended, you would want someone to explain themselves and, you know, and for it to feel genuine and heartfelt. And then you can start to sort of build bridges. And the big word is obviously trust. And yeah. then trust is all about, they all say that you really only got your reputation in life. And that is a lot to do with your character and integrity and trust. Do people find you trustworthy? Mm. However, when the stakes are really high, like in this situation, and let's be honest, the whole show is riding on James Corden being mm. trustworthy and likable. It's so important, like millions of dollars are at stake, livelihoods. So he's got to come out and say something that makes people feel like, yes, I, I understand and I believe you and I trust you again. It's, it's, it's absolutely crucial. And to get it done quickly, if you let it sort of go on and on, there's a bit of suspicion and, uh, you know, it, it can all backfire. Mm, absolutely. But his career hasn't been derailed by just an omelette. That would be a pretty powerful <laughs> omelette. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's more than just this single event. And I'm just going to quickly round up his previous controversies. Okay, let's do this. Well, there was a time that he got into this verbal spat live on stage at the 2010 Glamour Awards with none other than Sir Patrick Stewart. You know what? I, I saw that. And what was strange, I only saw it recently after this sort of stuff came out about James mm. Corden. They started replaying it on Twitter. And I actually genuinely was shocked because I thought, oh, no, I really don't like you now because it was all out there to see. You know, it just Patrick Stewart, I think, was being a complete gentleman, quite firm with him. But mm. he just was out of order. I can't imagine it would go down well publicly insulting someone who basically almost has a national treasure status. And I mean, there's a massive Star Trek fandom. So don't don't mess with the Trekkies is what I would say. Absolutely don't. Don't go there. And then on to his next controversy. I mean, he was accused twice, not once, but twice of joke stealing, first in 2017 by Noel Fielding and then again in 2022 by Ricky Gervais. Oh, yes. And I don't know, was this joke good? Well, I really like the Ricky Gervais one. It's, he said in a comedy sketch, they choose to read my tweet and then take that personally. That's like going into a town square, seeing a big notice board and there's a notice, guitar lessons. And you go, but I don't want fucking guitar lessons. Fine. It's not for you then. Just walk away. Don't worry about it. Yeah. But Corden's version was like pretty much word for word the same. And then it was sort of suggested that, oh, it must have come from a staff writer and not him, and he didn't know about it. And he sort of issued an apology on Twitter where he said, inadvertently told a brilliant Ricky Gervais joke on the show last night, obviously not knowing it came from him. Mm. But, you know, this is twice being accused of joke stealing. That's, you know, once as a mistake, twice as 
Mm-hmm. So then in 2017, in his um, Spill Your Guts segment that we mentioned earlier, it actually involved Jimmy Kimmel as a guest, but he was asking James questions for a change. And it was James who was eating or drinking unappetizing dishes if he failed to answer. And uh, Jimmy Kimmel asked him to name two of the cameramen in this room. And James giggled and replied, oh, that's a great question. Um, and then he said, oh, well, it's a different crew tonight, actually. And he reached for a fish smoothie. So he mm. didn't know <laughs> the answer to that question. I think I remember that. And it's, it's sort of a kind of a theme we're seeing, isn't it? Is that mm. showing that Corden doesn't seem to like take much notice or interest in people he considers lower down the packing order, you know, like servers, his crew. Exactly. And I mean, that's one of my big red flags is how people treat waiters. Yes. Certainly if yes. I went on a first date or even a later date and someone was really nice to me, but rude to the waiter, it'd just be like, no, thank you. That's just, it's such, oh yeah, such a big thing. Absolutely. I think it's just basic respect, but it's also just sensible as this comment shows. Imagine the amount of spit this dude has eaten in his lifetime. Lol. <laughs> I had some horrible customers in my time. I don't think I saw anyone spit in their food ever. But, you know, <laughs> apparently it's a thing that happens. I don't like to think about it. You hear it a lot in America. I don't know. I don't know if it's a thing or not. But yeah, it's yeah. certainly you don't want to um, risk it, <laughs> is what I would say. Yeah. Don't mess with people who deal with your food. <laughs> don't go for dinner with James Corden. No. Okay. But I think what also comes up for me when we talk about this example is, I mean, Jimmy Kimmel, knowing to ask that question, that suggests that he must have known what he was like. Because you don't ask a question like that if you don't already yes. think that, oh, he doesn't give a shit about the... Like, you know what I mean? He essentially outed him, and, and I find that quite interesting. I mean, he threw some serious shade, I think, at Corden, and maybe he sensed or he saw something about him, and he, in a stealthy way he wanted to unmask him. And I really say well played. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And the most recent controversy was actually this month um, when Craig Duncan, who's a seasoned TV director with more than 60 credits to his name, he actually called out James on his YouTube channel and he called him the most difficult and obnoxious presenter he's ever worked with. And he claimed that the English comic berated and cursed at staff for a popular British game show during filming in 2013. Um, he claimed that Corden had belittled him by saying, what the fuck is going on here? You put a camera there. You put a camera there. It's so obvious how you shoot it. You're stupid. <gasps> yeah. Oh. I mean, yeah. And that's to the director. So what's he saying to like the runners? But the YouTube comments in response were, the dislike for this guy must be so widespread that people feel so comfortable saying how much they hate him, which is a good point. And another mm. said... There are so many bad stories about him. My dad has worked in the TV industry for 35 years and the one person in all his time he said he hated was James Corden. Mm. And I have to say, I've gone through a lot of these and on different platforms, different forums, there's an absolute avalanche of people sharing their experiences, bad experiences of him. People who've obviously worked with him and they've posted this anonymously, but it goes back years. I mean, there were ones referencing when he was on Fat Friends, which I don't know if you ever saw, but this was years and years ago. I loved that show. So before he was even really famous. So it sounds like something that's been going on a long time. Have you heard of an Ask Me Anything on Reddit? Vaguely, vaguely. Yeah, so what it is, is like the idea behind it is that the producer or the star of a show, film or TV, they go online and say, you can ask me anything. And it's a really good format. It's the idea of you just sort of like, you can ask questions and they will answer them. And it just drums up a bit of publicity. So they did one for The Late Late Show with James Corden saying you can ask James anything a couple of years ago. 
and it really backfired and i just think it was the most epic thread i've ever read it was just so funny in a way that yeah and this was the top comment that was most liked hey james you won't remember me but me and my friends sat at a table next to you and harry styles and some others in mancurian legends in london's chinatown about six years ago we didn't bother you but you were a massively entitled who yelled and treated the waitstaff like shit and when one of my party politely suggested that you calm down you got really aggressive and threatening in a chubby way like a boozy panda so my question is this why did harry seem so cool while you were such a massive throbbing bellend <laughs> a boozy panda i've never heard that phrase before and i think it's gonna go yeah. down in history and now it's end. stuck in my head when i think of him i can really imagine this but it just went on and on the comments underneath like yeah. people had these stories and you literally couldn't get to the bottom of the thread about him so yes it's like really can there be smoke with no fire yeah yeah and these are anonymous as well. So you sort of feel like they're not gaining anything out of it. It's not like with the rest restaurateur who, you know, is getting publicity. These are just anonymous messages of people going, oh, I did see you and you were a dick. Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, there was another comment that said, I also don't have one, but I do want to chime in to say I agree. He is one hell of a c if I've ever wanted to punch a face so badly out of all the faces I've ever seen. It'd be James Corden's ugly, fat ass, slap-looking twatish face. Oh boy! Yeah, I can understand. Like, it, there's an element of comedy and stuff to it. But what I, ha I have noticed as well when you go through a lot of these comments is that one of the themes that comes up is there's a lot of people insulting him about his looks and his weight, or making jokes along those lines. And we've sort of touched on this topic in previous episodes. But why is that the go-to of insults? For example, I mean. There's so much evidence of his behavior being mean or arrogant, but the insults are just entirely focused on on his appearance. It seems such like a cheap shot, but also one that we go to so naturally in our society, mm. which I just think is something interesting and to reflect on. Yeah. But I mean, with all the hatred towards him, why do you think he became so successful in the first place, particularly in America? It's interesting, isn't it? Because we found this quote by Hannah Yellen, reader of media and culture at Oxford Brookes University and author of Celebrity Memoir, From Ghostwriting to Gender Politics. And she said about Corden, his star image was built around that cheeky chappy persona, which is essentially watching a man-child at play. Carpool karaoke was good, wholesome fun, and it was ever surprising that the biggest stars wanted to be part of that. Perhaps he fitted that Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins mould of chipper cockney lad in the American imagination. I've always found it interesting how American um, audiences perceive Brits, um, especially, you know, when they do those fake British accents and you're watching it and thinking, mm, no, that's not that's not right. We, we yeah. don't all sound like the Prince of Wales. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's more than him just being British. There's definitely a theme with a certain type of talk show host that's very popular and it sort of feeds into that idea of a sort of lovable goof, non-threatening, likable, and also a bit non-sexual, which is also part of the non-threatening. I sort of think Carson started that trend a bit. And another example is Ellen, but we'll get on to her later. Mm -hmm. And they've got this over-exaggerated, good-natured sort of clown element as part of their personas. And it does seem to drive their success. But ironically, I think it also seems to be what's behind the schadenfreude of his demise now. So, for example, Hannah Yellen also said, when a public image is built around an impossible performance of Peter Panish good cheer, it's fun to watch the darkness everyone knew must be there spill out by accident. 
In Corden's case, it was such a contrast to the one-note public persona that it cracked under the strain. Mm. So, I mean, I think that's there's something really true in what she says there because if someone presents as too nice, like unnaturally nice, um, almost almost Stepford Wives nice, there's mm. something that makes us feel like that can't be real. And I think there's also an element where it makes us feel less than because we're not living up to this impossibly high standard. So we're just sitting there waiting for the cracks to appear because we know they have to be there. No one can be that perfect. And I think that's why that's mm-hmm. why these kind of backlashes are so big. And also there's nothing worse than finding out someone is two-faced. And it feels like karma that someone's heard a lot of rumours about them, that they're not really a nice person and perhaps they're even a bully. And I think people do feel vindicated when they sort of get unmasked and revealed and they have that fall. Yeah, I, th- I think as, as humans, we really like seeing a bully get their comeuppance. I mean, there's this paradigm called a belief in a just world. It's a cognitive bias that assumes that people will get what they deserve. So those who do good will be rewarded and those who exhibit negative behaviors will be punished. It's a really important bias that helps us feel safe and that we live in a predictable world, you know, a safe world where that's fair. But one of the downsides is that it can lead to victim blaming as a way of coping with that fear. You know, if something bad happens to someone who doesn't deserve it, then it could happen to us at any point, regardless of what we do. Mm -hmm. So that's a really uncomfortable feeling to have. So we want to believe that everything is fair. And I, I think a part of this plays into people now trying to shoehorn this this idea that James Corden leaving the Late Late Show is is a comeuppance. It's a punishment mm. for his behavior. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's not. We don't know what goes on behind the scenes. But actually, he actually announced that he planned to leave in 2023 a year ago. And that was before the latest re- uh, restaurant incident. And then in January, he explained his reason to leave the show was to spend more time with his kids. And what he said was, I know at my core that the best thing for me and the best thing for us as a family is to put down some roots in London and it feels absolutely right in every single way. And at the time of announcing he was leaving a year ago, CBS executives also exclusively told DailyMail.com that they desperately tried to keep him for longer. Now, obviously, we can't verify that or not, but I do think it's interesting to note. But a lot of people are definitely not buying this narrative. There's a Daily Mail comment that says, how about his ratings are down? He can't pull in the number of viewers the network requires or wants. He isn't funny. He grinds on the last nerve people have when it comes to interviews. And lastly, he thinks he's more important than he really is. And someone else replied, I would say that is spot on. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we'll never really know the truth on this situation, but it all seems very good timing, doesn't Mm. it? As they say. Uh, So the Telegraph, um, they wrote an article on him and they said, people may call him fake. People may call him fat. People may call him talentless. It's also true he's a bit Marmite, but he's one of our most successful exports. And they went on to say that he should be landing a top gig at the BBC or ITV and we'll see him turn up in a few years once his floor has calmed down. But Corden has said himself that he doesn't know what he'll do next. And he said, I've had to make peace with the fact that Gavin and Stacey, one man, two governors, History Boys, Late Late Show, McCartney, that might just be the high point of it all. He said, I generally do not know what I'm going to do next. I have something I'm writing, two things I'm writing, but I'm not in them. Who knows if they'll get made? With a question mark. And it's interesting because there's a lot of humility we're seeing, right, in this statement. Mm. Uh, Sort of like, I'm going to really retreat into the shadows. I'm just going to go into the radar. Like maybe he does sense, um, surely he does after he read that, 
ask me anything Reddit forum <laughs> uh, or thread, that, that he's not in a good place right now in terms of the public. So it'd be interesting to see how this all pans out. Yeah, definitely. And and if he's still got friends in the industry, we'll we'll see with that as well. So as we mentioned earlier, this isn't the first time that we've seen this with a popular talk show personality, someone who built their success on likability and who then came crashing down after stories of mean behavior and bullying came out. So for example, now we've got Ellen. Yes, Ellen. I mean, Ellen, she became such a TV staple, like almost a national treasure, that she sort of reached that sort of same level of fame um, that she only needed her first name, like Oprah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I would say Oprah's probably the pinnacle of at least daytime talk show success. I mean, she's huge in broadcasting. But just in case anyone's not familiar with Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres, she debuted her daytime talk show in 2003. She actually won 61 daytime Emmy Awards. And she had interviews with some of the biggest stars in Hollywood. Um, She also voiced the character of Dory in Finding Nemo, which is a lovely... I love that film. Uh, And she was famous for basically dancing a lot on her show. She used to always start her show dancing. She had a great energy. And and like James Gordon at the start um, and Ellen, I just really loved them as presenters. I did really Mm. buy into their whole personas, you know. Well, what's interesting is that she's built her reputation, her brand on being nice. You know, the comic who doesn't swear or make jokes at the expense of others. She's even developed the slogan of be kind to one another. And this led to a whole range of Be Kind merchandising. There's the Be Kind Ellen hat, the Be Kind wine tote, a Be Kind, even a subscription box. And a single box goes for uh, nearly $55, while a year-long subscription costs nearly $200. And the premium subscription, which includes opportunities for Ellen to gift surprise and delight items, is a mere... At $251.96. I like how precise we've been there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and yeah. I'm wondering, what are these surprise and delight items? That just sounds like, oh my gosh, you're going to send me, you know, a whole car. You know, because like, you know, when they give that thing away in chat shows, like a yeah. car. And, and, then it, and then it's just like a, you know, a, a coaster or something <laughs> instead. A bath bomb. I mean, essentially what it is, is be kind, but also fun my lifestyle. Um, and, you know, this takes us back to the goop episode, really. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> Let's merch things to death. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose like Gwyneth and just like James Corden, she's also been hit by a scandal and essentially a fall from grace. She absolutely has. And public rumours of her not being so nice, they started circulating in 2020. And that's when a comedian, Kevin T. Porter, he tweeted a plea asking for stories about the star. And what he tweeted mm-hmm. was, right now, we all need a little kindness, you know, like Ellen DeGeneres always talks about. She's also notoriously one of the meanest people alive. Respond to this with the most insane stories you've heard about Ellen being mean. And I'll match everyone with $2 to LA Food Bank. Ouch. I mean, what a call out. Yeah, I, I mean, some people thought this was absolutely just a joke to start with, but it it resulted in an absolute slew of stories about her mean and rude behavior. Mm. So, for example, there was one that said there was a lot about working for her. So one said, working for her, I was instructed that I can't look her in the eye and never say hi to her first. But don't worry, she definitely won't be saying hi to you in the first place. She creates the most toxic environment for her staff. And there's a lot of stuff about don't mm. make eye contact and, and at work. 
And there was another one that said, I worked at Real Food Daily. I served her and Portia at brunch. She wrote a letter to the owner, complained about my chipped nail polish. Not that it was on her plate, but just that it was on my hand. I'd worked till closing the night before, and this was the next morning. She almost got me fired. There was a lot. It makes me so angry. (laughs) (laughs) So what's interesting is I think even before this, her mask has started to slip. Yeah. Um, You know, there was that viral moment in 2019 with Dakota Johnson on her show where she called her out, um, Ellen, for lying about not being invited to her birthday party. And there was this big thing. And, you know, it was a big thing for a celebrity to call her out publicly on her own show, but she did it in a very cool way. And, Mm. And she said... You know, this is Dakota Johnson. Actually, no, that's not the truth, Ellen. You were invited. Last time I was on the show last year, you gave me a bunch of shit about not inviting you, but then I didn't even know you wanted to be invited. I didn't even know you liked me. Mm. And it really has this pause. And Ellen's sort of like left twisting in the wind. And you sort of see that look on her face, like she's been caught out a little bit. Yeah. It's really, you can just see it if you watch the clip. But how important do you think it's for another celebrity or someone in equal position of power to be the one to call her out because you know it feels like it needs to take a lot of momentum because even though people have made lots of complaints before it takes that one person to sort of tip it over yeah i do think it is really important because someone who is in an equal power position they've got a lot more believability a lot more credibility um they're in a better position to call someone out but even then it's almost like it just opens the door if you have one or two accusations it can be dismissed as they've had a bad day or um, those people are lying for some reason, but but it has to get a momentum going before anything really happens and before, before there's a big enough backlash. I do think that we've changed a lot since the Me Too movement. And, and, and previously it was too difficult. Look at the whole Jimmy Savile thing. Mm. People had been making complaints. They'd even gone to police stations and it just wasn't accepted or listened to because he was a national treasure and he was so big and so connected. And only after he died mm. did it get to that point where it really sort of opened the floodgates. But yeah, I think I think that makes a big difference if someone in power calls them out. A bit like Jimmy Ka- Kimmel asking him about the cameraman. It was someone of an equal standing. It sort of opens the door for it. And I think it, I think it is important. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. And with Ellen, this then led to more accusations of a toxic workplace, a third party investigation by the network and a round of executive producers being fired. And Ellen's response, interestingly, was quite similar to Corden's. She did that sort of half apology thing, Mm. you know, apologising, but feigning ignorance of the situation. And she sent a memo out saying, I kind of want to do the Ellen voice, but I'm not going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) On day one of our show, I told everyone in our first meeting that the Ellen DeGeneres show would be a place of happiness. No one would ever raise their voice and everyone would be treated with respect. Obviously, something changed and I'm disappointed to learn that this has not been the case. And for that, I am sorry. We've grown exponentially. I've not been able to stay on top of everything and relied on others to do their jobs as they know I wanted them done. Clearly, some didn't. That will now change and I'm committed to ensuring that this does not happen again. However, this wasn't enough to save the show and after losing a million viewers, the show announced that it was ending in May 2022. Yeah, there was a sort of, um, it was just, it, they couldn't stop the bleeding, so to speak, is is what yeah. it seemed like. And also with that apology, it's such a, I'm really sorry that everyone else didn't do their job, um, but I'm wonderful. You know, I don't think that lands well with the public. Yeah. But it's pretty hard to apologize and say, I know I'm a completely terrible person. I'm really sorry for that. I don't know how that would land either. So you're sort of in this catch-22 situation PR-wise. Mm-hmm. 
But I think what's really interesting is this is actually her second fall from grace, so to speak. And when people talk about a rise and fall, she's actually had a rise, fall, rise again, and then fall again. Mm -hmm. She started out as a stand-up comedian and her first appearance was, weirdly enough, on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, who we mentioned earlier. In 1994, she actually landed her own sitcom, which was also called Ellen. And it was a huge hit at the time. I mm-hmm. remember watching it. I don't know if you ever saw it. Yeah, I did. I saw bits of it in her comedy clips and I really liked her. Like I, I was like, like I said earlier, when she first came out, I loved her. Mm, yeah. And then in 1997, it was sort of at its peak of popularity. And that's when she came out as gay and she also did the same for her on-screen alter ego. And and I remember that was huge at the time. And yeah. I don't, I mean, I would have been quite young actually then. So I would have been oblivious to it. I, I, it was such a shock for a lot of people. And the ratings for that particular episode where her character came out, they were very high. But within a year, the whole show was cancelled and she didn't actually work for a few years after that. Um, she sort of like disappeared and she couldn't really get any work. And then... It was only with the new talk show when that was launched and Finding Nemo did she have a major comeback and then she sort Mm. of seemed to be a sort of TV staple, like the queen of daytime TV. It felt sort of like at the time of that first fall from grace that there was a sort of backlash at the time as if America really wasn't ready for an openly gay woman and a sitcom. And she was actually credited as one of the first big stars to do that, to come out in such a big way. But by 2015, there was a poll by Variety that found that Ellen did more to influence Americans' attitudes about gay rights than any other celebrity or public figure. Mm -hmm. So she had a lot of love for that and she did make a really big difference in that way. And I think part of the reason for that is it goes back to her public persona again. Uh, Like we talked about, she, she really built her name and she bounced back by being friendly, approachable, generous non-threatening and I think importantly a little bit asexual because that is non-threatening to people it really seems to be the crux of why she bounced back in my mind she felt like she was just everyone's friend and took on almost that androgynous fairy godmother role giving away prizes you know raising money for charity encouraging everyone to be kind and importantly she really boosted people's careers you know she'd take them from obscurity off youtube and give them a moment on tv you know so she was yeah. She's an incredible force in entertainment. You know, I think it's quite sad, really, because I 100% agree with encouraging kindness. But I think the importance is that it's authentic kindness because people can often confuse the difference between really being kind and actually having poor boundaries or being overly solicitous for selfish reasons or just being like unnaturally happy all the time, like a Disney character, which isn't actually healthy. <laughs> You know, um, that's not true kindness. Sometimes true kindness is saying no to someone because you love them enough that you're you're willing for them to not like you because it's for their best. But I mean, I mean, it makes me think of, did you see that Disney Pixar film Inside Out? No, I haven't. And I know you always mention it, but I've never seen it. I must see it. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's one of those what they call recovery films. So um, when you're an inpatient in clinics, they make you watch a whole load of healthy films. But this one, even though it's an animated, mainly for kids, it's brilliant in my mind because it's about emotions. So so it has all these um, characters who are emotions that live in the head of an 11-year-old girl. And the crux of the film is essentially 
we eventually get to a point where we realize that we it's okay to not be okay. Mm-hmm. To start with, Joy did everything she could to stop sadness taking over, but it was actually sadness that sort of saved the day. That was the message in the film. And emotion researcher Jane Gruber, she suggests that making happiness an explicit goal in life can actually make us miserable, interestingly enough. It seems that people are starting to become aware of this concept of toxic positivity now. I mean, have you heard of toxic positivity? Yeah, and and I find it really invalidating when someone says, oh, you'll get over it. Oh, it'll be sunny tomorrow. Oh, Mm. like it'll be okay. And they don't want you move on that's the thing that really irritates me just move on it's yeah. like we don't want you to to sort of dwell on things which actually maybe you need to dwell on things yeah maybe you need to feel them i mean so just for anyone who doesn't know psychology today has defined it as the act of avoiding suppressing or rejecting negative emotions or experiences this can take the form of denying your own emotions or someone else's denying your emotions insisting on positive thinking instead And that whole positive, you know, positivity is key to everything. And Ellen's not the only one who's jumped on this bandwagon. Um, I had a look and on Instagram, there are almost 17 million posts that use the hashtag good vibes only to spread sort of what you could describe as overly optimistic quotes. For example, like when you can't find the sunshine, be the sunshine. Or if it doesn't make you happy, don't invite it in. Oh, oh no. Yeah. I think that I've actually pinned some of these on my Pinterest. (laughs) (laughs) I've never gone around saying I'm the sunshine, though. That's just, no. I mean, just to be clear, I'm not saying don't be positive or don't encourage positivity, but it's just when it's so, it's just when it's, that's the only option. You're only allowed to be positive. That's where I think it gets a bit dangerous. But this goes back to your point, like about when you said earlier about Stepford Wise, when you people meet people that are naturally happy or seem emotionless it's a bit disturbing isn't it mm. or they're constantly happy you're like what's going on you know yeah actually one of ellen's show correspondents kaylin allen even highlighted the problem with hitching your wagon to a kindness slogan like ellen did on a podcast he said i personally would not do a slogan like be kind to one another i understand the thought like yes absolutely be kind to one another but i think that's where it gets troubling as human beings we are not kind 100 percent of the time I'm not going to adopt something that is going to create a false perception of who I may be. At the end of the day, we're all human beings and that's the relation I want you to have with me. Yeah, I kind of like that point. And I think, you know, on top of just these personas being, you know, overly happy and fake, talk shows themselves are kind of a fake situation. Mm. They're almost like deliberately trying to force water cooler moments, but they're essentially there to sell stuff. Oh boy, yeah. All the celebrities are there, not really as themselves, but as their public persona in, in, in order to seem approachable so that people want to go to their movies. They're, they're forced contractually to be there often by, by the network or the production. So there's a sort of inherent illusion there. And I'm not, I'm not against talk shows. But I think that's why I quite like Graham Norton because he gives them all alcohol and he just lets them <laughs> lets them go. <laughs> um, I think what maybe also what we're looking for more and more these days is authenticity, and mm-hmm. and I think that's an important thing. Well, and that's why um, they say that podcasts have really taken off because they give people that space for maybe an hour or two hours to go into a real conversation that isn't just like you said centered around selling my movie and doing four stories. And I actually don't like watching these shows i find them really fake and tacky Mm. but i do like these little segments i have to say the carpool karaoke was a winner for me they did some brilliant there's some brilliant comedies the celine dion one i still can't get over 
And as with both the talk show hosts we've covered today, once the mask slips, it's really hard to put it back on. Mm. And Mark Goldman, a reputation management expert, said, once the public is fully aware that a show host is not who they say they are, it's very hard to earn back that trust. Absolutely. So I guess one of the, the main questions is, do you think either of them can come back from this? Well, like I said with James Corden, I think he'll retreat and we won't hear from him for a while and he'll come back slowly and we'll see him again maybe on British TV. Hard to know with Ellen. I mean, she's made so much money. Apparently she's worth, I researched, $500 million. Wow. And she's into property flipping now. So I think <laughs> yeah. she's very comfortable. I was reading this quote by David Schmidt. Um, he's a culture expert and professor of English at the University of Buffalo. And he told Newsweek, I think the puncturing of Ellen's apparent likability delivered a fatal blow to her career. But I think Corden has already been forgiven and will be allowed to move on. Why? Good old fashioned sexism, in my opinion. Our standards of what's considered acceptable conduct for male and female celebrities are just as distorted as our standards for men and women in general, which I found a really, really interesting quote. Well, it almost reminds us of in the Alice Evans um, episode where we talk about is anger acceptable in women? Yeah. You know, uh, what's considered um, assertive in a man might be considered bossy in a woman. But but I think there is another element here of um, James Corden has a few more strings to his bow. He can come back as a writer and as an actor. Ellen has for the longest time now just been a chat show host. She hasn't been doing stand up. She hasn't been mm-hmm. doing these other projects. So her entire brand is based entirely on her persona. I would probably almost recommend that James Corden goes away, writes something and comes back as a character because, you know, there's a sort of, you can stop thinking yeah. of him as James Corden and think of him as the character. But I do think that's an, that's going to be an element and, and possibly she's, they've burnt too many bridges. It depends with both of them. Mm. And I think it's also, it's a bit like Cats and Their Nine Lives. How many comebacks can one person have? This is her second comeback. So it's like, is there a third? I also think it depends in terms of comebacks. It depends on what they fell out of favor for. So, you know, if you fall out of favor f- for being a bit of a dick or saying something once that's different to a pattern of behavior and I do think you know anyone who falls out for sexual abuse I think it's harder to come back from and rightly so so Mm. but one of the things that we wanted to go into is that you know it's about the call-out culture yeah you know these celebrities now are under scrutiny 24 7 yeah is it just a case that we're just holding them to higher standards like we said before like David Letterman got away with a lot back in the day because probably there just wasn't that ability to kind of build momentum like you you know and and sort of people to connect dots well you didn't have the reddit forums did you like people weren't able to go on the internet and share their personal experiences and now they can and people can video you um at the drop of a hat but at the same time i think there's a difference between a single outburst and it you know obviously you you see cases where they've taken a single photo of someone and maybe they're just moving and they've described it as this person's in a bad mood and actually just they got a bit of wind in their face and they're blinking and it's not an accurate portrayal. But when there's this many, um, this many stories about him and it seems to be like this many stories within the industry where he's well known, he's got a reputation in the industry for being an asshole, that, that's a sort of different thing for me. That, mm. That's where it's like, you know, with Bill Cosby, when you've got like 12 women um, making complaints, that's different to one woman. And, and it shouldn't be, but it is. It, it, it suggests a pattern of behavior. 
And, and mm. I think that makes a big difference. One of the things I want to touch on is that, yes, these are TV hosts whose jobs are to be personable and entertaining and likable and lovable. But is there a lesson for us, you know, in the workplace, you know, apart from not obviously being an asshole, And, you know, <laughs> um, often we're encouraged to put on this professional mask at work and not bring, you know, our authentic selves to work. And I understand it in a lot of ways. But it feels like work requires quite a lot of separation of ourselves. And that is something I find fascinating, you know, from a psychological perspective. And maybe we can do a whole episode on that. But for the sake of time, do you think it's healthy to split our personalities for work reasons? Um, I think it's it's complicated. So like Brené Brown talks a lot about bringing our authentic selves to work and the importance of empathy. And there has been a massive shift from the 60s to now. And we're not holding people for the need to be perfect and have no emotions in the same way. But it, for all people, we play different roles in different parts of our lives. How we are with our children is not how we are mm. with our partner. How we are with our partner and our friends is not how we are in a job interview. And that's kind of normal. What it, when it's what you're doing is you're sort of bringing a part of yourself and just keeping another part, you know, private for, for a different aspect of your life. And that's very different to completely creating a whole persona that isn't real or completely suppressing everything. You know, mm -hmm. if you're having a bad day, you can't just be yelling at everyone, but you don't also have to be running around happy, pretending that everything's perfect. So it's about the balance. Mm. I mean, we're only human. Yeah, it depends on how big of a split there is between the real and the persona. And having different aspects of ourselves that we bring out in different areas, as long as they're sort of relatively authentic, is is fine. That's healthy. That's normal. But um, when you're creating whole personas that aren't true and you're fully suppressing other parts of yourself, I, I think that's where it builds to a point where it can't. you can't keep that mask on 100% of the time. No. And you just have to go on Instagram and look at sort of these memes about corporate life. And there is this sort of feeling of disassociation going along, on for a lot of people. There's a lot of comedy around it. Like you're just feeling dead inside because you have mm. to be almost like in some professions, the more professional it is, the more it's almost requiring you to be dehumanized. And, and, mm. and, that, and that we're sort of encouraging that. And I think, like I said, I think it's a whole topic we can go into for another podcast. And I really do like what Brené Brown said, and she's done a brilliant podcast series on this called Dare to Lead. And it's all about sort of dropping that armour and leading authentically and from the heart and wholeheartedly. But she's also about good boundaries. Yeah. So maybe we can turn Ellen and James Corden onto Brené Brown. We should send them the book. <laughs> yeah. We've gone through a lot of comments. I mean, we could have made a whole series just about chat show hosts because yes. we wanted to talk about so many things. When we were doing the pre-research, we were talking about Trisha, Jeremy Kyle. Uh, we were, yeah. I mean, it's just a whole, a whole spectrum of people we could go through and analyse. But for the sake of today, we've gone through all the comments. What are your final thoughts? So many of us have so much heaviness in our everyday lives that it's not really a surprise that we look to entertainment to be lighten up lifting. I mean, for example, Taskmaster is my go-to for that. And this is where some types of daily talk shows come in. And they start to become a part of our daily routine that allows people a dose of fun and silliness, something they need to take their minds off their own lives. And as a result of that, chat show hosts like Ellen and James Corden, they can start to feel like people we actually know. They're the lovable goof that we see every day and could be friends with. 
And as chat show hosts, they're supposed to be themselves, or we believe that they are just being themselves. But they've often actually created a larger than life persona that just no one could live up to every minute of every day. But when the mask slips and we hear that people we think we know are actually unpleasant people in reality, it can feel like such a betrayal. I mean, no one's perfect. Everyone can have a bad day and be short-tempered. I've done it. I'm sure we've all done it. And if you're a celebrity and people are watching you all the time, it must be absolutely exhausting having to be nice all the time. But then when there's an avalanche of stories and accusations of obnoxious and demeaning behavior, it does start to look like a pattern. And I think that's something else. And as they say, how someone treats the people they perceive as lower status than themselves, it says a lot about a person's true character. Mm. And one of the lessons that I think we can see in these examples is, yes, it's important to be kind, but it's even more important to be authentic. So I'm with Brené Brown on this one. Hell yes. So I'm going to leave it with this final quote from none other than Socrates, who said, the greatest way to live with honour in this world is to be what we pretend to be. Thank you to our lovely producer, Emily. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to leave a review and subscribe. It really does help us in reaching more people. You can also follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at s2tcpodcast. You can find out more about the show, get behind the scenes, come and say hello. Until then, see you next time. This podcast has been produced by Emily Crosby Media. 